I don't mean to rush you in all of your friendliness and fellowship, but we've got a lot to cover this morning. We've got a lot to do today. As you know, it's March, and of course March means two things. It means baked potato bars. It also means shamrock shakes, if you're so inclined. Shamrock shakes are back just for the month. Um, Hey, before we dismiss the kids, we have something super special that we get to do as a church family, and so I want to call up the Avila family. Uh, Millie and Bella and Paolo and Bethany and big boy Benjamin. We're going to do a baby dedication, more sort of a child dedication. This time life gets busy. Look at that. Look at that big boy. And look at these sisters. He has no idea how well looked after he's going to be. Come on up, you guys. Don't be scared. You know, baby dedications are one of my favorite things to do. They, um, you know, more so as much as dedicating the child unto the Lord, but really dedicating the family unto the Lord. And as a church family, it's our opportunity to stand with this family and say that we want to support you in your endeavors to raise this child and dedicate his life unto the Lord. So that's what we're doing as we're here as a church family. That's why we do it up here in the front just so that we can all commit to that, we can extend a hand and just ask the Lord's blessing, um, not only on this wonderful boy, Benjamin's life. How are we doing, Benjamin? Good? We good? Looking pretty dapper in that bow tie today. I love it. So we're just going to, let's all pray for uh, for Benjamin and for the Avila family. Just ask the Lord to, uh, to bless. So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for Benjamin. Lord, we thank you for his life. Lord, we thank you for the godly legacy, Lord, that he's a part of. We thank you for his godly parents, Lord, for Paolo and for Bethany. Lord, we thank you for his wonderful sisters, Lord. We thank you for his godly grandparents, Lord. We thank you for the plans that we know that you already have for Benjamin. Lord, those things that you want to do with his life, Lord, those things that you want to do in his life. And we pray, Lord, that you, would, uh, that you would start that at an early age. Lord, we do pray for Paolo and for Bethany, Lord, in their efforts to, to raise him, Lord, and the girls uh, in your ways, Lord, that we as a church family can come alongside them. Lord, that we can commit to be praying for them, Lord, and to be a support to them, Lord, in any way that we can. And so we thank you, Lord, as we, um, as we dedicate Benjamin's life to you this morning. We ask your blessing on him, Lord, and on this family. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Benjamin, you rocked that, buddy. That was outstanding. Good. Oh, hey. Thank you. We have this just so that you know it was official today, right? So thanks, you guys. That was awesome. Good work. Thank you. All right. Super. All right, you guys. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you. You can just raise your hand. David's got some. He'd be happy to pass out to you. Oh, kids, I'm getting the, I'm getting the sign. Kids, you guys are dismissed unless you want to stay in here with us. Youth group, you have no choice. It's your Sunday in. Bless your hearts. You'll be with us today. Thanks, kids. It was good having you part of our family worship day. So anybody for a Bible? Bible's going once, going twice. 
All right, turn to Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at the first half of the chapter this morning, the first 23 verses. And Acts chapter 10, um, I have to say, is one of the most important. It is one of the most pivotal in the entire book of Acts because it records the, uh, if we could call it the official opening, if you will, of the door of faith to the Gentiles, right? Anyone that wasn't already a Jew. And this story is so important, in fact, that we're going to see that Luke is going to recount it three different times uh, in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 10, again, when we get to chapter 11, and finally once more in chapter 15. Now, we've watched, of course, we've seen the way that Peter has been used by the Lord with those keys to the kingdom, right, to open the door of faith. We saw Acts chapter 2, he opened it to the Jews. Acts chapter 8, we saw the door of faith opened, if you will, to the Samaritans. And now, in our text today, Peter's going to sort of complete that special ministry by opening that door of faith to the Gentiles. And it's going to happen with the salvation of a man named Cornelius, who was a, a Roman army Officer. Now, I hope I didn't just spoil the story for anybody because, yes, by the end of chapter 10, Cornelius will be saved along with his entire family. And yet there is so much that needs to happen even before that happens that we're actually not going to get to that until next week. Now, what's, I think, interesting and it's important to remember is that this event that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 10 takes place 10 full years after Pentecost, which means it was also 10 full years after Jesus had told his disciples at his ascension that he said in Matthew 28, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Ten years ago that happened. So why did it take so long? Well, certainly in the minds of the apostles, they had already gone all through Jerusalem. They'd also gone up to Judea. They had even gone up into Samaria. And though they hadn't yet quite approached all of the nations, certainly the Lord couldn't have possibly meant that they were to take this precious gospel message to the Gentiles. Remember, the rabbis taught that the Gentiles were good for nothing more, that they were created to fuel the fires of hell. So when Jesus talked about all the nations, surely he must have meant all the nations. He must have meant the ends of the earth of the Jewish people. But Jesus was about to show them that that is not at all what he meant. And that when he said all the world, he actually meant what? All the world. And that he meant for his people to carry this message to them. And we've seen over and over, right, as we've looked at these opening chapters, when God wants to do a work, what does he do? He calls a specific servant of God, and then he empowers them specifically with the Spirit of God, and then he enables them to preach or to proclaim the Word of God. And we're going to see that very same process in this chapter, but I think that in this case, 
there was even some extra work that had to be done. There were some extra obstacles, if you will, that had to be overcome before that could happen. Because before God could work in Cornelius, he had to first work in Peter. Right Before he could save the Gentiles, he had to first prepare the Jewish Christians for this next and kind of final phase as the gospel is released into the world. And I think as we look at the beginnings of this process, and specifically this morning at the preparation of Peter, I really believe we're going to see some similarities to the way that the Lord works in each and every one of our lives as he prepares us for those seasons and those times of change, and as he prepares us to do those things that we never thought were possible, those times when he really is doing a brand new thing. So let's pray just quickly again and ask the Lord to really just bless our time in the word today. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be together, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us the things of you, Lord, who gives us understanding, uh, illuminates the scriptures to us, Lord. And we pray for that ministry to be active this morning. Lord, give us understanding, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to your church, Lord, to each of us individually, Lord, and, and to all of us as a church collectively. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember when we last left Peter at the end of chapter 9, we watched him sort of ministering miraculously in these multiple different situations. He was healing the lame. Remember, he was even raising the dead. And we saw it said he was going through all parts of the country. And he was ministering to the needs of the people right there in the midst of the people. And he was, we said, doing the things that Jesus had done. And he was doing them in the ways that he'd seen Jesus do them. And it was so encouraging as we left off because it really seemed like Peter is getting it, right? We left him at the end of the chapter. It said he was lodging there at Joppa, right? That city there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he was even staying in the house of a man named Simon, who Luke told us was a tanner, right? A Jewish tanner. And this would be a man who would have, we said last week, he would have been considered by the Jews to be constantly, ritually unclean because he worked all the time with dead bodies. And yet we see the way that the Lord was starting to work in Peter to break down these walls of legalism and of tradition and really starting to prepare him for this next step of his ministry. And it's a step that would come now to a most unlikely man, at least in Peter's mind. Look what it says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 10. It says that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now, Caesarea was predominantly a Roman city, again, there on the shores of the Mediterranean, about 30 miles further north of Joppa, and it was the headquarters of the Roman governor who governed over the province of Judea. It was the home also of the Roman army who had been sent there to keep the peace there 
That's the Italian regiment. Now, if any of you are using the original King James Version, it says there that this group of soldiers was called the Italian Band. Now, I just wanted to clarify, this could be a little bit confusing because these guys weren't actually the Saturday night entertainment down at Maggiano's, right? This was a band of soldiers, okay, not a musical band. All right, so the Roman army, you know, was divided into legions of 6,000, and then those legions were divided into cohorts of 600. Finally, those cohorts were divided into six groups of 100 men each, and there was a centurion sent, hundred centurion placed over each one of them. These guys were kind of like the master sergeants. They were the backbone of the Roman army. Historians describe these men as brave of heart and sound of mind and strong in discipline. And what's interesting about centurions is that every time a centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, he's always spoken of in a favorable light and always used by the Lord in a noble way. And so here we have noble Cornelius, yet another noble centurion, who God is about to use nobly. However, because Cornelius was a loyal servant of the Romans who were the oppressors of Israel, every single Jewish person of that day would have had a natural hatred for this man. And all centurions... And yet what's interesting is we read that of of this particular centurion, look what it says there in verse 2. It says that he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So Cornelius was a Roman who believed in the God of the Jews. We've talked a little bit before about this category of what the Jews would have called God-fearers, right? These were Gentiles whose hearts had kind of grown weary of all the pagan myths and the empty religious rituals, and they had turned to Judaism so that they could find the one true God. One author wrote that as a typical Roman... Cornelius had been exposed to the Roman gods, Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus, etc., but found then being exposed to the enlightened concepts of Judaism had become devoutly monotheistic. So understand, Cornelius was as sincere a seeker as one could sincerely be. He was one who prayed. We see there that he's working out his faith in the God of Israel through his charitable actions. It says he's giving alms to the poor, right? He obviously had a real relationship with the true God, but he didn't yet have the saving truth of the gospel. He was devout and he was honest and he was generous and he was sincere, but he was not a saved man. And again, Cornelius becomes for us such a great picture of so many today who might be models of kind of religious respectability. They might indeed be very religious. They might even be very sincere in the way they're seeking, but they're still lost. And what happens, unfortunately, is so many religious people today become so satisfied with their good character 
or that, or uh, you know, satisfied that their good works are somehow going to get them into heaven, that they don't really have a concept of their own sinfulness, and as a result, they truly don't understand God's grace. And yet, the difference here between Cornelius and these kinds of religious people is that he knew that his religious devotion wasn't sufficient by itself to save him. We see that he's here seeking after the Lord. He's looking for further revelation. It says in verse 3 that about the ninth hour of the day, so that was about 3 p.m., so afternoon, said he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And so he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, in his prayers, what we learn later in Acts chapter 11, Cornelius, it says, was asking God to show him the way of salvation. And here the Lord is about to answer those very prayers. And this is such an encouragement to me in this story here of, you know, centurion Cornelius. Because he's a man who we could say lived up to the light which God had given him. And even though that light wasn't yet sufficient to save him, look at the way that God is ensuring that he receives the additional light of the gospel. It's such a beautiful fulfillment, I think, of what Jesus promised in John 7. He says, if anyone wants to do the will of God, they will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. So here the Lord is leading, he's drawing Cornelius into that truth. And it starts with this ministry of this heavenly messenger who appeared to him in this vision. Now, at the end of the chapter, we're going to see Cornelius refers to him as a man in bright clothing. So when he addresses him here using the word Lord, notice it's usually a, it's a lowercase l. And it's really just the word for sir. Now, I have to say again, before we move on, I love the fact that the heavenly messenger calls Cornelius by name. He doesn't say, hey, centurion or hey man, or hey you, he says Cornelius. And remember, the Bible declares in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord says that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So here's the Lord reaching out to this Gentile man individually and personally, and we see Cornelius responding readily, right? He recognizes immediately that this is God speaking to him through this heavenly messenger, promising that all of these prayers that he's prayed are about to be answered. And the angel continues in verse 5, he says, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. So just as we've seen before, angels, angels can deliver God's messages to lost men, but they can't preach the gospel to them because that's our privilege. That's our responsibility because our salvation is first and foremost, it's a work of God's grace. 
And so God works through human channels because we're the only ones that can really understand his grace as it's been poured out upon each one of us so freely. What a privilege it is we have in telling the gospel to lost souls. And it's a privilege that the angels can't have because they haven't experienced the grace of God in the ways that we have. So now God wants to use that experience for us to pass this on to other people. Certainly, could God not just open up the clouds and thunder down the gospel to heaven if he wanted to? Of course he could. And yet he's chosen instead to use you and he's chosen to use me as his instruments to tell people this good news. I have to say, I I think that if we could ever really get it into our heads that the gospel really is good news, we wouldn't need to take classes or attend motivational seminars on witnessing to the lost. Because the blessing of telling people that the Lord truly loves them The blessing of assuring someone that every sin that they've ever committed or every sin they are committing, every sin that they will commit can be forgiven because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That privilege shouldn't ever be a burden to us, but it is absolutely pure joy for us. So I had to ask myself this question, and maybe you can ask it of yourself. How long has it actually been since you have looked someone in the eye and said, I have good news for you. Jesus loves you, and he died for your sin. Has it been a week since you've done that? Has it been a month maybe since you've done that, or maybe it's even been longer? Here, God sends an angel in a vision to Cornelius, but he would use a man to preach the gospel to him. Guys, it's good news. Amen? And it's good news that we get to share. So the angel appears. He says, send for Peter. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who had waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Right away, right, without delay, with this kind of a soldier-like obedience, Cornelius calls for these two servants, gives them a guard to protect them on their journey, and he sends them off on this important mission. And I think it's interesting, too, it certainly appears that these three have been influenced by Cornelius's faith. Not only the servants in his home, but even the soldiers under his command. It says right there that he was a, a devout soldier. Right? This man had seen Cornelius's faith and probably come to the same sort of faith himself. One more thing I think is kind of puzzling is why the angel had to direct Cornelius to send for Peter who, remember, was a full 30 miles away down in Joppa, right? That would have been the better part probably of a two-day walk. Why did the angel have Cornelius send for Peter when we learned at the end of chapter 8 that Philip, the evangelist, was already there in the very same city of Caesarea? 
wouldn't Philip have done just as well as Peter? Well, perhaps. And yet again, it had been Peter and the other apostles to whom the Lord had entrusted this work of opening up the door of faith. And a reminder, I think, not only does God always work just at the right time, but he always works through just the right servants. See, as one of the heads of the church of Jerusalem, I think it had to be Peter because this new thing that God was doing was so big, it's the only way the sort of established church would have possibly received what was being done. Even though Peter would probably need a lot more preparation before he was even ready to receive this himself. Look what it says in verse 9 as we kind of shift our focus to Peter with this kind of a puzzling vision. It says that the next day as they went on their journey and as they drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Now, I love the the picture this verse paints, even as these messengers that had been sent out by Cornelius were just coming close to Joppa to see Peter, God was about to prepare Peter for their visit. Because one thing of which we can always be sure is that whenever God is at work, we've said it before, he's always working on both ends of the equation He prepares us for what he's preparing for us. Although sometimes we don't see it at the time, do we? Now the sixth hour would have been about noon. It would have been six hours from sunrise, the way the Jews reckoned time. It would have been a customary time for devoted Jews like Peter to break from their normal daily routine and to seek the Lord before the midday meal. The rooftop of the house would have been a perfect place for Peter to pray because in that culture, at that time, in that region, the housetops were normally flat. So Peter wasn't sitting up there perched on some sort of a, you know, point or something. He's up there on kind of a, a patio, right? It was a great place where somebody could find some privacy. And no doubt it looked probably over the beautiful sea. And there was a cool breeze that would have been blowing in from the water. And yet watch what happens in verse 10. As Peter's up there praying, it says in verse 10 that then he became very hungry. and He wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Who can relate? Amen? Isn't this always the way it works? We sit down to try to seek the Lord, and immediately along come the distractions. And in this case, it was poor Peter's stomach starts growling and gurgling, and so much so that it seems like he's drifted off into some sort of weakened, hunger-induced half-conscious state, and yet watch the way that the Lord is going to use even these distractions, even the weakness of Peter's flesh to communicate with him in a powerful way, because it says next in verse 11 that he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. 
So do you see the way that Peter's hunger actually provided the perfect preparation for this vision that was filled with food? So certainly the Lord now had Peter's attention, didn't he? And I bring it up only to say that I think that so often God uses the things which we're naturally feeling and he uses this world in which we're living to speak to us in the most wonderful ways, right? Naturally through the supernatural. Here, this great sheet that it says that Peter saw, it's the same word which would have been used for a sail, like on a ship, like out on the sea where Peter had been looking. And I love the way that God doesn't condemn Peter for feeling hungry. He doesn't condemn Peter here for spacing out as he was gazing out over the water, but he used all of these things to meet with Peter right where he was. And it just reminds us that God knows us and God wants to communicate with us. Peter was hungry. And yet, when we read that description, what Peter saw probably would have been partly super appetizing, but also pretty puzzling. Because amongst this sheet of these all kinds of four-footed animals with wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air, amongst this, there was a bunch of stuff that Peter couldn't eat. Remember, the Jews had very strict Food laws, right? Leviticus chapter 11. It prohibited them from eating many of the four-footed animals, including like a pig, for example. Peter had never had a piece of bacon, right? Many four-footed animals couldn't eat most creeping things like insects and reptiles, but who really would want to eat creeping things anyway? And there were some birds that they were prohibited from eating like vultures and all the different kinds of gulls. And so it's as Peter's looking at this kind of mixture of all these different kinds of animals, it says in verse 13 that a voice came to him, rise, kill, arise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Not so, Lord. Right? Obviously, this went against Peter's commitment as a Jew to never eat anything except foods that were kosher, foods that were clean. And yet, even though Peter's refusal was kind of polite, it was still wrong, right? It's, it's often rightly said of this verse that you can say no and you can say Lord, but you cannot say no Lord. And we can all sit here on Sunday morning and go, amen, brother, you know, amen to that. And yet we can agree that Peter's response was absurd, but shouldn't we also probably agree that Peter's response is typical of each and every one of us. Because we all know what God's will is for our lives. We know how we're called to live. We often know what it is we're supposed to be doing. Right? We confess him with our words. We call him Lord. And yet we pull back from being fully obedient in our lives. And effectively, what are we saying? We're saying, 
Not so, Lord. And it's such a strange thing because at the bottom line, if he's not Lord of all, then what? He's not Lord at all. But if he truly is Lord of all, then no Lord really isn't even an option. And I bring it up to say that maybe there are some areas in each of our lives where we've been saying, not so, Lord. And maybe it's only you that know what they are, right? It's between you and the Lord. But maybe those areas, we just need to really settle it in our hearts. Is he Lord over even that thing? And if he is, then how can we say not so, Lord? Now, of course, we know that Peter had priors, right? On, uh, he had this bad habit of telling the Lord no. Remember in Matthew 16, he says, no, Lord, you shouldn't go to the cross. John chapter 13, he says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And I think it's a little ironic in this passage, we compare the apostle Peter's response to God, not so, Lord, and we compare that with the Gentile Cornelius's response to the Lord, which is, what is it, Lord? So at least on this day, it seems that Cornelius was more responsive to what the Lord wanted to do than Peter was. And what that reminds us is something very significant. It's something that is incredibly theologically insightful. You may want to write this down because what this reminds us is that Peter was still Peter. Amen? Peter was saved. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter had been used greatly by God, but at the very same time, Peter was still Peter. And God wasn't using Peter because he was perfect. He was using Peter because Peter was moving in the right direction and because Peter was making himself available to be used. The Lord was using Peter because the Lord saw what Peter could become. And so often we can fall into this trap of thinking that we have to be perfected before the Lord can really use us. And yet God is so much bigger than even our small thinking about what the Lord could possibly do, whether it's in our lives or way beyond us through our lives. Because Peter had pretty much just put God in his own little box, hadn't he? This sort of a box of limitations, but the Lord was about to really shake Peter up. He was about to change Peter's thinking and turn it upside down just the way he so often has to do with each one of us. As he starts to really expand our understanding and kind of adjust our perspective. Because at this point, Peter still thought the Lord was just talking about food. But now watch the way God is going to show Peter he's getting at something that's way bigger than that. It says in verse 15 that a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, we all know from reading through it, right, just now in the Old Testament, this distinction between these clean and unclean foods, this was a major thing between the Jews and the Gentiles in that day. So here's the Lord starting to use this centuries-old regulation to teach Peter a very critical spiritual lesson. 
right? The law of Moses, which was what included so many of these dietary restrictions, that was a wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. But that wall had already been broken down completely at the cross. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains this. He says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, that at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of those commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross." God was doing an entirely new thing here. God wasn't simply changing Peter's diet. God was changing his entire program, right? The Jews weren't clean. The Gentiles weren't unclean. But both Jew and Gentile could now be cleansed, could now be holy together in the sight of God because of the cross of Jesus. And this, please don't, check out on me because this isn't just some theological technicality, but this is a very practical and a very personal picture of the way that God can now receive in his grace any one of us who comes to him. There's a man named Harry Ironside. He pastored a church in Chicago back in the 30s and 40s, and he writes recounting this memory. He says, I've heard my mother tell that when my own dear father was dying, that this passage, here in Acts 10, was running through his mind, and he kept repeating, a great sheet and wild beasts, and, 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 but he could not seem to remember the next word, but went back and started over, and once more came to that same place, when a friend bent over and whispered, John, it says, creeping things. Oh yes, he said, that is how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing, but I got in, saved by grace. No matter how low, how vile, how utterly useless, less uncorrupt or unclean, the soul that trusts Jesus is in that sheet let down from heaven and we'll have a place in glory by and by. Amen. So what God has cleansed, we should never call common. And God has cleansed you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, God has cleansed you, and you now have a place in glory. He's washed you in the blood of his son, though you may have come in like I came in, just as some sort of a creeping thing. 
Most of us have this tendency to say, you know, I don't think that God could ever use me because I'm no good and I don't pray like I should. I don't read my Bible like I should. I say things that I don't mean to say. I struggle with things. You know, I'm just dirt. I'm just this creeping thing. And yet what God says to us is don't call common what I have cleansed. God says, I have cleansed you and I have chosen you by name and I did it before the foundation of the world. And God says, I'm doing a new thing and you're part of that. Verse 16, it says that this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. And look what it says at the beginning of verse 17. It says that Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Now, by the time this whole drama had been played out the third time, we have to think that even Peter was starting to get the idea that God was trying to tell him something, even though Peter didn't still exactly know what it was. Now, again, before we're too quick quick to criticize poor Peter, I think we've probably all been in the very same spot. When the Lord is, is working and he's moving or he starts to speak into our lives and he starts to kind of churn up the soil of our hearts and we know that something significant is starting to happen but we still don't know exactly what it is. One of my very favorite scriptures in the Old Testament is when God is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah and he's talking to him about the difficulty that's coming upon the nation of Israel. And God declares in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, in verse 28, he says, just as I watched over them to uproot and to tear down, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Now there are seasons in all of our lives when it only feels like the Lord is uprooting, doesn't it? It only feels like he's pulling up every single thing that we have put down. And if this is you right now, take heart, because the very same God who's pulling up now is simply preparing to plant again later. So whether it's those relationships or those circumstances or emotions or just these feelings that are being unearthed, that's likely the Lord just preparing the soil to plant something that's fresh and something that's new just as soon as that soil is ready. So here's God stirring up Peter, right? He's kind of turning. I think he's tilling the soil of his heart because he was about to do something new. God was about to plant something in Peter that would take root. And Peter may not have known exactly what it was at this point, but watch as we finish the chapter. We've got to applaud the way that Peter responds to at least what he did know. Look again in verse 17. It says that he wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. And behold, it says the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Again, talk about timing, right? 
God's timing is always perfect. And these three men from Caesarea arrived at the gate just at the moment that Peter is there pondering the meaning of this vision. Verse 19, that while Peter thought about this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, I love how clearly the Spirit speaks here to Peter, and I think that it was for good reason. Notice at this point, with all the Lord has told Peter, the one thing God has not quite told Peter is that these three visitors who were seeking him were Gentiles. Because normally, a godly Jew like Peter wouldn't associate at all with Gentile men like this. And since we've just seen Peter's last performance, perhaps the Lord knew that it might just be better if Peter didn't know all of the details. All that Peter needed to know is that it was the Lord who'd sent them and that he should go with them. And sometimes I think that we need to thank the Lord as much for what he doesn't share with us as what he does tell us and trust that the Lord's really the only one who knows just how much of the truth we can truly handle God had spoken through his spirit now God was about to speak next through these Gentile visitors verse 21 it says then Peter went down to the men who'd been sent to him from Cornelius and said yes I am he whom you seek For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Now we read it in a verse, but try to picture it in our mind's eye. Imagine Peter's surprise when he comes downstairs and he sees there standing just outside the gate of the house two Gentile servants and a Gentile Roman soldier. And then they deliver this detailed bombshell of a message. We can only imagine kind of the awkward silence, right? Here's poor Peter processing everything that they say in light of what the Spirit had just said. Okay, Lord, you sent them. Okay, I'm supposed to doubt nothing, but I'm supposed to go with them? Right? How long might they all just have stood there watching Peter ponder? But look at the beginning of verse 23. It says, then he what? Invited them in and lodged them. This was Huge, absolutely huge. Because normally a Jew, what a a good, respectable Jew would have said was something like, well, it's nice to have met you. Thanks for the info. We actually need to stay out here in the street because I can't invite you into my home. Or he might have said, you know what? Just down the road on your right-hand side, you'll find an inn. Why don't you guys go down there and I'll catch up with you cats in the morning And we can go see this Cornelius. There was no Orthodox Jew who would have invited Gentiles into his house, much less 
share a meal with them. Because what time was it? It was noon. And poor hungry Peter's been waiting, starving up there on the roof, waiting for this lunch to be ready. Now these guys are here. What do you think he did? He invited them in, and no doubt they all ate together. In fact, the words there that says that he lodged them, literally it means to entertain them as guests. So here Peter welcomes these guys in and entertain them as guests. And he did this against every single custom of the Jewish people of that day. This would have been forbidden. So here the walls are coming down and they are coming down quickly, right? Jericho style, right? What's important is that by doing what Peter did... Yes, he was going against all the customs and the traditions of Israel, but he wasn't actually going against God's word. And I think that it's very possible that at this very moment that God suddenly flooded Peter's heart with an understanding, perhaps for the very first time, that yes, that though the Old Testament commanded that God's people weren't to become like their pagan neighbors, it also said that God wanted his people to become a light to those neighbors who didn't know about God. In Isaiah chapter 42, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. See, it had been the Jews who had added all of the unnecessary rules and the ritual and the regulation, which set them not just apart from, but really put them at odds with all of their unbelieving neighbors. But that was never God's intent. And it still isn't God's intent for us. We can remain holy and we can remain separated and we can remain consecrated in the midst of the world while still being a light to the world. Now, just think with me for a minute about this group of guys who would have been staying there in that house that night in Joppa. We have an unclean, despised Jewish tanner We have the great apostle Peter of the new Christian faith. We have these two Gentile house servants. And we have a devout Roman soldier. This to me sounds like a great setup for a hit sitcom, doesn't it? Where you take a handful of kind of unlikely opposites and you throw them into a strange situation. And you put them in some uncomfortably tight quarters and you just let the games begin. And yet, isn't that the way the Lord so often works? It says, he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So I still think at this point, Peter wasn't exactly sure what was about to happen. And yet he knew enough to know that this was going to be something special And so chapter 11 tells us that he selected six Jewish believers to go along and to be his witnesses. Interestingly, Deuteronomy 19, which we'll get to soon, says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So what Peter just did is he took either two or even three times the official number 
that would be needed so they could all witness what it was that the Lord was about to do. Now, we finished up last week. We mentioned that it was here at Joppa. Remember that another one of God's servants, the prophet Jonah, had been directed by God, same thing, to go share his message of grace with the Gentiles. And Jonah really said, not so, Lord, didn't he? And he jumped on a boat and he headed in the other direction and he earned himself a three-day stay in the belly of a great fish as the Lord kind of dealt with his hardened heart. And now for Peter, this was his Joppa moment. And yet he said what? Yes, Lord. I don't fully understand what you're doing, God, but I'm in. And maybe you are at a Joppa moment in your own life right now. And you know that the Lord is doing a new thing and you know that he wants you to be a part of it because maybe he's stirring you up and he's turning and he's kind of tilling your heart and yet, for some reason, there you stay still stuck at Joppa. But the Lord wants to move each and every one of us beyond Joppa, doesn't he? He wants to move us into something new, even if we don't fully understand right now what it is, and yet we simply need to step out in faith. We simply need to say, yes, Lord, I know this is you. I trust that you're the one who has sent these messengers. I want to move forward, Lord, and I want to do it doubting nothing. We can do that and then just see what it is that he'll do next. Now, what we're going to do next is we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate that new life that we have because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of the, his broken body and because of his shed blood. And what we do, we do here and it's open to anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a member here or, or just visiting, if you are a part of the body of Christ, you're welcome to take communion with us. And if you're not a part of the body of Christ, you can be a part of the body of Christ today. Simply by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, asking him to come in and to take control of your life and to start to lead you in the direction he has for you. There will be people up here on my left and, and right to pray with you. If you have questions about starting off a new life in Christ and what that means and how to do it, and, um, and they can help you. So for the rest of us, as Kissy comes up and, and starts to minister, um, let's worship the Lord and just come forward and take the elements uh, whenever you want. You can take them back to your seat and take some time with the Lord. And, uh, and take the elements on your own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And we do thank you for those new things that you do in our lives, Lord. We thank you for the way that you stir up our hearts, Lord. We thank you that even in the midst of our confusion, Lord, that you desire to bring us along, Lord, and to have us to be a part of what it is that you're doing, Lord. And we do pray for anyone here this morning that's in a season of 
of pulling up, Lord, that season where you are uprooting so many things from their lives, Lord, where they're dealing with things they don't understand, Father. We, we pray that you would help them even now as they contemplate the, the blood and the body of your son, Lord. We pray that you'd give them confidence in the fact that you're the one who is, uh, who's simply preparing to plant. And so, Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as we take communion, Lord, that this would never simply be something that we do just because it's the first Sunday of the month, Lord, but that truly it's something that we do because we want to worship you, Lord, and we want to offer up our lives to you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.